This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. It is difficult to uh, confirm or deny app issues when it only appears to happen on devices that you don't have access to. And this is in reference to the project that we can't talk about? Yeah. The only person who I know for a fact has a device with the chipset that I think it's not working on is my mom, and I'm not confident <laughs> I can explain to her how to install an APK file. Well, you'll have to go visit. Yeah, I get the client to pay for me to go down for this yeah. weekend. Mm-hmm. Actually, I need to try and get it fixed by Friday because they've got a big demo. Awesome. From what I've seen in videos that you've shown me, it's really too bad that we can't talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is I'm not, this isn't really supposed to be podcast content. More just me complaining. <laughs> okay. Basically, why does Samsung have to have their? Why can't they just use the same <laughs> chips that literally everybody else uses? They just started doing it. It's very annoying. Um, sorry, I apologize on behalf of Samsung. Thank you. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How's your week? You don't want to know. <laughs> Math, chipsets. I finished up that last project I was on, and uh, on the last episode, I talked about how I was really trying to have no commits that added lines, and that morphed into <laughs> I want to have the most deletions in the app ever, <laughs> uh, which, you know, the app was a few years old, and uh, there's a lot of vendor JavaScript, so anytime they update vendor JavaScript, people get credit for a lot of deletions, so like... Most of my deletions were pretty legit, and I was sitting there at like 25,000 deletions. And I was coming to the realization that I just wasn't going to be able to find another 20,000 deletions that I had to pass to get to number one. But my ratio was really solid, right? Like I had a really low number of lines added. So I was pretty happy with that, pretty enthused. And then uh, this client developer, Michael, who had, I believe, like, I don't know, a handful of deletes, uh, he found a log file that somehow got committed to... (laughs) somehow got committed to github oh and it was shit. like forty five thousand lines oh. Uh, <laughs> oh that sucks so he, he found so it and uh then he sent me a message immediately that was like how did you miss this one and i could not believe it and so then that that like renewed my vigor for like okay i'm gonna find some more like here here's some vendor javascript we're not using at all or i can totally eliminate just by moving these three lines around so I ended up finding just that alone, and then he he found another CSV with like five hundred lines or five thousand more lines in it that was con- that was committed for some random reason after I had passed him. So it went neck and neck, but I I I won. I'm very happy. I yes. have the most deletions. Nice. I ended up with fifty one thousand deletes and like eight thousand ads or something. So I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> it's a good ratio. I want to have that effect on every project. <laughs> Why was the vendor JavaScript not minified? Well, here's the thing. If you're going to have vendor JavaScript, this is a real topic now. If you're going to have vendor JavaScript, why would you minify it? Like, let the asset pipeline minify it. I guess that's fair. It's like if you're in development and you end up in some random jQuery plugin that I know, like, it's not like when it goes into jQuery code and I'm like, I am not going to debug jQuery code. But if it goes to like some jQuery plugin, like I'm highly suspect of the quality of most jQuery plugins. Well, sure. So like I'm fine stepping through that code and trying to figure out if there's a bug in the jQuery plugin. And you can't really do that very easily if it's been minified. So That's fair, I guess. I, they actually had originally been checking in minified versions, and I requested that if they were going to vendor JavaScript to check in the unminified versions. Why were they vendoring JavaScript? 
Well, what are the alternatives? Bauer. Uh, RailsAssets.com. Yeah, RailsAssets. I think it's .org. .org. Something. We'll put the link in the show notes. Bikeshed.fm slash 18. DocsDoctor.org. <laughs> oh, wait. We haven't even aired that one yet. No, it's coming up. Oh. Uh, <laughs> free plug. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, your options are Bauer in conjunction with Rails, which I, I don't know. Bauer has so many similar problems that NPM has that we have yet to enumerate, but someday we will have the NPM podcast. Okay, but the, see, but here's the thing. Arguing against using the JavaScript package manager because it has problems is like the same people who are arguing that Git submodules are better than CocoaPods for managing iOS dependencies. Like, yeah, it has problems, but it's better than vendoring everything or using submodules. But it's, I don't, I, I really hate this approach. I don't think it's better. There's no good solutions here, damn it. I, I really don't think it's better than like Rails asset gems, especially if you use railsassets.org. Yeah, I mean, I think RailsAssets.org is a good solution in general. So, if for people that's not familiar, not familiar with that, basically, it looks at Bower, I believe, or maybe even just um, Bower. GitHub. It looks at Bower, it, Bower. which actually looks at GitHub, um, which is one of the problems I feel like with Bower. But it looks at Bower and then wraps a gem around a bunch of Bower packages, basically. Yeah. Um, so you just set your source to RailsAssets.org, and then the gem names are like Rails-Assets- dash, and then whatever the package name in JavaScript is. Something like that, yeah. And um, it's pretty good. It works out well. I had written one of the things that it's probably my most popular blog post on my personal blog is I had written a post about how to gemify assets when Rails 3.1 came out um, because I really liked the idea of having versioned JavaScript assets in your application. And I don't think at the time Bower was really around. I think it came out like right around the time Rails 3.1 came out. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, Bauer was not around then. Right. So that was I thought that was a good solution. And I wrote a bunch of asset gems, and then I wrote that tutorial on my website about how to create them. And people started creating them, and people started using them. And then I quickly realized maintaining them is a pain. <laughs> and so most of my, like the most popular one I have is for Moment.js, Moment.js-Rails. And I only update it when somebody like opens an issue and it's like, hey, this isn't up updated yet. And even then, I try to get them to update it. And then I yeah. just merge it Welcome in. Welcome to the Moment Rails core team. <laughs> yeah. I did, I did have uh, one person take over for a little while, but he seems to have also been afflicted with the same thing that I was afflicted with because then he went away. Well, I just for the record, you do still need to have manually gemified assets. I'm not sure if Rails Assets does this for you, um, but for just straight up Bower... That won't work if you're dealing with assets that provide custom style sheets or images. Why not? Well, so it's mostly images are the biggest issue because the, the asset will then reference the images, except the images are going to get hashed. And then it, this is even assuming that the asset pipeline goes and looks in these places, which I don't remember if it will even find those images in the first place. But then even if it does, it will end up hashing them and then... Same issue with style sheets, right? So if you have straight, if you have like straight style sheets that say like uh, image uh, URL is something is like you know slash images slash logo dot png, then if that gem has images in it, Rails is going to put the MD five on the end. It's going to basically what do they call that process? Hashing, hashing, fingerprinting, or whatever. Fingerprinting, yeah, yeah, that's right. So when Rails fingerprints that image asset, <laughs> the original bare asset is no longer going to be there. Yeah. And so it's not going to work. It used to work before Rails 4, I think. Before Rails 4, when you compiled assets, you got both the fingerprinted assets and the actual assets, I believe. 
I don't think that's ever been true. Uh, I know that oh. we changed it so that if you do something wrong that I don't remember what it was, where we would fall back to if we don't know of the asset, we'll just try, like in the image URL helper in SAS. I know we, we used to, or if we didn't recognize that path, we just fall back to whatever string you gave us. And that would mean then that your stuff would work in development, but then not in production. Hmm. Um, because in, in development, when we're doing routing, we do just fall back to the, non, the non-fingerprinted URL will work in development. Anyway, and you'd have the same issue with the, with the assets from the images from Bauer, which again, again, I'm not even 100% positive that the asset pipeline even finds them. But if it did find them, there would still be issues. Yeah, I mean, if, if depending on how, I haven't looked at how Rails Assets packages those, but it should find them. I mean, you have to have them in the right location, though, I guess, right, is what yeah. we're saying. Yeah, it's true. I think. I don't know. Ugh, dependencies that provide images and JavaScript and CSS. Right, and, well, and, that, and that's the nice thing is that, you know, most of the time you're talking about something like Moment Rails, which certainly doesn't have style sheets and certainly doesn't have images. Right. And then most of the really popular things that have style sheets and images like Bootstrap, uh, or foundation have actually separate, well-maintained gems. But then that's, that starts to bother. That, that starts to bother me because then you have some of your dependencies for that type of stuff specified as Ruby gems, and some of them specified as Bower gems. Unless you're using or, Rails asset, right? If you're using RailsAssets.org, RailsAssets.org. <laughs> I think it's the best solution available right now. You know, you don't have to deal with changing your Heroku deploy. You don't have to have Node installed. You don't have to other things. <laughs> okay, yes, stay with that. So I started on a project for MIT, and okay. it's for the uh, office of the provost, and they have a, um, basically there are a bunch of like professional associations that have, like so, like if you're getting a degree in mechanical engineering, then we have these outcomes we expect you to have gotten from your degree, right? So we expect... You know, accredited schools to have eighty percent of people at this point to have you know good knowledge of, I don't know, whatever you learn in mechanical engineering class, right? So it's basically a, a web app to start trying to track these better uh, because it's a it's a nightmare and none of the administrators or, or professors or teaching assistants that manage this stuff actually like tracking any of this data. Is this going to end up giving them visibility into how many of their students actually were able to get jobs with their fancy degrees? No, I don't think so. This is specifically just to satisfy, they're called ABET requirements, A-B-E-T. So um, it's specifically just to satisfy these organizations that cert, that like certify MIT as like an ABET accredited, you know, mechanical engineering program or something okay. like that. But what's really cool about the project that I really like so far is, first of all, in comparison to my last project, it's so small and the problem set is pretty small that like there was this established app that had some errors it has some rough edges and basically we're going to spend the first week fixing those errors and the rough er edges and then we're going to spend the second week improving the experience and then that's going to be it but when we got started with it melanie who i'm working on it with asked to have ci set up on it like travis or something like that so like can we get can we get travis set up on it and the project manager said you know oh well he looked at the cost and he was like i think i might have to get like a po for that and that's going to take longer than this project's going to run for. And I was like, well, I guess we can just keep running the test locally. Like, they pass. It's cool. Um, and then, like, a day later, he's like, oh, I, I moved everything over to GitHub and uh, open-sourced it. And now we're on the free CircleCI plan. And I was like, oh, right. I'm doing work for a university. Like, <laughs> like this is great. Like, we'll, we'll slap the MIT license on there for you, and uh, it's good to go. 
So I was really excited about that. But now, like, it, 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 I feel like it ratcheted up the pressure. Now this thing's open source. Somebody can find it and be like, oh, what does that guy who's talking on that podcast actually do when he has to write the code? So it's trouble. Everybody go find this code base and uh, send, <laughs> send extensive code reviews. <laughs> yeah, ask me why I didn't just do something and uh, demand that I use some other pattern. That'd be yeah, great. Say just a lot. I know Derek <laughs> really likes that word. <laughs> right. Um, How's your math coming? How's your homographies? Your uh, they're good. isomorphisms? They're, they're good. My only issue right now is that the animators gave us uh, the assets using... So we had a very hard time explaining to them that we are not using Unity or Unreal. And so I had originally asked them for just all the assets as a Maya file with everything done in it. Because we have our own file format that we developed for another project that is uh, open source now and is poorly documented. I'm hoping to finish documenting it and give a talk on it at some point. Is this the stuff you did for um, Marshall Codex? Marshall Codex, yeah. Uh, Well, it started off as that and then I've had to modify it a lot for this project. And they were cool with you open sourcing that? Yes. That's awesome. We open sourced it a while ago because uh, I had a couple of game studios asking me about it. This is the binary file format that I think we talked about like way back in like episode three or four or something like that? Yeah, that one. Cool. Anyway, and, and it's it works really, really well on mobile, but the, the entire pipeline for getting that file format uh, starts with Maya, so I'm like, can I have everything as a Maya file? So they send me a Maya file that's rigged, but not animated. What does that mean? And What's rigged mean? So rigged is when you have built the skeleton, and you've bound, wired up the, the mesh to the skeleton, and you have a bunch of controls that may move more than one joint. Um, and so it's the thing that an animator can use to easily make good animations. So it's like uh, if it's been rigged, I can drag this one point and it's going to move some other points that are associated with that point kind of thing? Right, and and so you, well, and you'll have it, and it's going to depend, like the rig will depend on what you're doing, and so like a facial rig might have a happiness control or something like that. Um, but it basically means having a skeleton, having that wired up properly, and having the ability to move the skeleton around. All right. And so an, an animated then means like the skeleton does move around and, you know, it does what it's supposed to. And so the mesh was rigged, but it wasn't animated, and it didn't have any of the materials built. So the lights wouldn't reflect off of it properly and stuff like that. They just had the absolute minimum added to these files. And then they also sent me a Unreal project with the animations built in Unreal and the materials built in Unreal. And then they sent me a Unity project with the animations built in uh, Unity and the uh, materials built in Unity. So I'm like, I need an animated one. And they're like, oh, sorry. Here you go, except the things weren't centered because the two meshes were meant to interact with each other when they were animated. And um, they were positioned so that if they were both placed on the same spot, that they, they, the interactions would be lined up perfectly. But given the nature of this application, I need to place them separately, so I needed them centered on origin. And then also this file didn't have the materials. I'm like, can we center them? And also, can I please have the materials? So then they sent me another one with the meshes, with the models centered and the materials I think they're built, but I, 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 there's still files that seem like they should be referenced that aren't. And now my issue is that they set, what they sent me was materials that were built around physically-based rendering, which is this fancy new hotness that the new version of Unity and Unreal supports, and I guess Disney's pushing really hard for it. And so traditionally what you do is you have um, a specular and a gloss map, and so the specular map is the color of... Um, so like 
diffuse lighting is color, right? So it's where when a light is not shining on me, it gets darker. Or if a light's shining from an angle, like there's a gradient. And then specular highlights are where you have, you can actually see, you know, like on my microphone right here, you can see the actual physical reflection of the light source on it. Right. Uh, and that, that's referred to as specular highlights. And you usually use a reflection model called Fong or Blin to draw that. And the way that it's traditionally done is you have a specular map, which describes the color um, that light will reflect off of every piece of it. And so you would ha- it's usually a single channel. And so it would be uh, closer to white on things like eyeballs, and it would be closer to black on things like clothes. And then you'd also have a gloss map, which describes how much that light spreads out. So the more intense the specular map, the, the more light would uh, reflect off of that point. And then that, the higher the gloss map, the uh, more pinpointed the reflection of the light would be so if you had like a bald head that's going to have more of a reflection coming off there than somebody who's got than, a, than an animation that has like a for something that has like long black hair or something like right. that well the specular would be higher but the gloss would actually still be unless the guy was really sweaty the gloss would actually be relatively low okay but like your eyeball would have gloss it's really high right and specular it's really high so what the, the uh, physically based uh, shading does instead is you have a metallic map and a roughness map and so it describes just how metally something is and then whether it's smooth or rough. And the idea is if something's smooth, then more light reflects off of it in a certain way. And if something's closer to metal, more light reflects off of it in a certain way. And there's lots of really cool, like you can Google it and you can find all kinds of neat stuff and you can find the same two images that show like a sphere and then, and then like what it looks like with varying metal metallic values and then what it, that it looks like with varying roughness values. But what you can't actually find is anything that explains the math or like, okay, cool, but if I'm writing a rendering engine and I have this thing, what do I actually do with it? So okay. now I'm going back to that. I'm like, can I just get this as a traditional specular gloss map? Because it, it entirely exists as an artistic thing because it may, like for animators and artists, it makes more sense for them to think about the actual real-world material, and then it just makes it easier for them to develop like what the values for the metallic map and the roughness map should be for every point on a model versus if you uh with specular i don't actually know the artistic process behind it but i know that they ultimately you can achieve the same thing with either the traditional or the physically based but i just can't find any i've never worked with physically based before and i can't find any information on what to actually do with it so i feel like this just this experience basically speaks to how unity and unreal have basically taken over that entire space Sure. Right. They expect that like, oh, I'm going to give you these things. You're a developer. You're probably using them in Unity. You're probably using them in Unreal. One of those two things. Yeah. I mean, ex- and those are movie studios, though, but they don't have blogs. <laughs> no, like if, 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 if the people who what make, does not having uh, a blog uh, have to do with anything. Well, OK, so, so just imagine if ThoughtBot didn't have a blog. Yeah. Think about how many times during your career you've had your problems solved by going and finding an article on ThoughtBot's blog. Right. Now imagine every Rails developer doesn't have a blog. There are no there are no Rails developers with blogs. We all work for IBM. Right. And they won't let us have a blog. Or we all work for Apple. Yeah, I feel like this was kind of the situation when I was a .NET developer, right? Yeah. It, <laughs> we it's didn't, definitely worse we didn't have very many shared packages and we had like very few blogs. And that was but it. there were better resources for .NET because .NET was like, you know, Microsoft like wants you, wanted you to right. be a .NET developer. Right. Yep. Uh, and the same isn't necessarily true for OpenGL. There's just not the greatest resources out there. There's like, especially for OpenGL ES2, which is what you're using if you're doing mobile. If you find any decent OpenGL resource out there, it's either for OpenGL 1 or it's for OpenGL, desktop OpenGL 4, hmm. which OpenGL 1 was completely different and terrible. And OpenGL 4 
has lots of really neat stuff that you can't use. So it sounds like um, you should start blogging a lot more about this stuff. <laughs> I've been meaning to. I just, I just don't have time. <laughs> blogging about it and, and pushing to see if there's any parts of it that you can open source, right? So that like people yeah. have examples of this stuff and people who maybe who know who have been doing this can point to you and be like, actually, there's a better way to do this. It's this way. Yeah. Or if you wanted to use those metallic and whatever the other maps were. Roughness. <laughs> Roughness. Here's how you would do it. Sounds like that's the piece that you're missing, right? So like unreal and unity and this whatever the disney thing that you were talking about uh they've all figured out how to use these maps in their systems but they're not sharing that information with you well so not quite true unity will generate the opengl shaders and will let you see the generated opengl shaders unfortunately it's forty-seven thousand lines of obfuscated glsl glsl is opengl instruction language or something like that yeah it's the it's the language that you write your actual shaders and it's the it's the gl shading language Okay. The graphics language shading language. <laughs> or graphics library shading language, I okay. guess. So how do you figure out how to do anything ever? Like, how did you learn how to do this? Most, uh, honestly, like, so there were some pretty decent tutorials up to the point where you have, like, a cube. And then light, lighting and reflection models are just really well understood, so that's easy enough. And then a lot of it was honestly just throwing stuff at the GPU and seeing what stuck. Okay. Um, until eventually something, you know... Eventually, something had the uh, the right look, more or less. There's a there's a handful of places in the Marshall Codex engine where just like I, and I, and I multiply a number times zero point five. I don't know why the math says I shouldn't have to, but it looked wrong unless I multiplied it by zero point five. Oh, that is um that reminds me of the who's the um virtual reality headset guy. Oh um I, he used to work he used to work for ID um, right Doom Carmack John Carmack yes. He has his own constant, the Carmack constant. Yes. Do you know what this is? I cannot remember the story. I just remember, like, I don't even know if he found it. It's just named the Carmack constant. Somebody at id maybe found it, but it, it's basically, like, some magic number they arrived at that works really well in lots of different solutions, uh, for, in lots of different situations, and nobody knows why. Yeah, well, it's from, it, it's not in a lot of situations. It's in one situation that's really common. It's from the Quake 3 source code, and uh, you can find the function out there. And so what it would do is it would uh, cast a pointer to an integer to, uh, from a float to an integer, do some bit shifting, uh, pointer cast it back to a float. And by, when I say pointer cast, it's important because that means that it's not actually converting the number. It's keeping the exact same bits, but then interpreting it as a float instead. And so by doing this bit twiddling and then uh, converting it back to a float and then multiplying it by an, a certain number, back in the days before you had an inverse cube root uh, instruction on the CPU, this was a, uh, a really good way to get a fast approximation of an inverse cube root, but nobody could figure out why it worked. And above the bit shifting part, there was just a comment in the source code that said WTF. <laughs> so that's the constant? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the number. Right? It's just some really random float where if you if you bit shift a thing when you're treating it like an int, even though it's actually a float, then uh, and then multiply it by this number and then bit shift it back, you get an inverse cube root. Okay, no we, we will find the origin of this and link to it in the show notes, bikeshot.fm slash 18. You can read it. Maybe I should tweet to him. He's actually really responsive on Twitter, but he knows how to do physically based rating or sh- <laughs> shading. Yeah, tell him to come in for a day. <laughs> John Carmack, if you're listening, please tweet us. Yeah, send with, us some with, um, with, uh, with shading help or any other 3D shading people. Send us one of those things. The uh, you know what, what is the hell's the name of that virtual reality headset thing? Oh, an Oculus. I've got one. Yeah, there. an Oculus. You've got one there. Yeah. You use it? Uh, uh no. 
I mean, it was, it was, I was going to try and get this engine running on it when I had some free time. I was going to try and port it to Rust and then get this to work on it. Why do you need to port it to Rust? Because it'd be fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's no technical reason that you need no, to No, just Rust, like Rust seems like it, it's a language that would make a lot of sense to do this in. Okay. The only reason I'm not doing this current project in Rust is because uh, both OpenCV and Vuforia are C++ libraries, and even though Rust has really good C interop, it does not have really good C++ interop. So what are you doing the project in? C++. Okay. Fun. Yeah. So you're writing this in C++, and it's going to run on an Android phone? Android and iOS, yes. Okay, I understand how you can write it in C++ and have it. I thought, I thought all Android apps had to run java basically i'm wrong about this no i mean you can run basically any any language that you can call from c okay or that you can call from the jvm you can do on android so people write android apps in clojure and scala and then java has a c foreign function interface so i didn't know that java had a ffi interface that's where i'm where i think i tripped up yeah you just there's a native keyword so if, if you do private native void blah it's going to look for the C function, uh, capital J, Java, underscore, com, underscore, full identifier, underscore, full class name, underscore, and then the method name. And then it takes a pointer to a Java environment and a J object for this, which people usually call viz with a Z, and then <laughs> any arguments. Viz with a Z. That's nice. Mm-hmm. It's like class with a K in Ruby. Yeah. Wow. So that's basically how you write a C extension for Java. Yes. Or, um, and then you, and then you can call and so then you can call that C, you know that C function from Java because that just links up magically and then it's a little bit harder if you want to call a Java function from C because you have to use the Java environment pointer and the object pointer and grab first you have to get the class identifier from from the object then you have to find the method ID for the method with the signature and you use this weird syntax to specify the arguments because it has static overloading so if it only takes primitives and it's like uh, you know, get foo i l b if that if it took an int a long and a byte or something like that, mm-hmm. and then if it takes an object, it actually might be l for object. I don't remember which it is for object. It's not o, but then you have to and and then you have to give the full fully qualified class name, but separated by slashes. And if anything is an array, there's a single left square bracket at the beginning of it. <laughs> um, and you just put all of this as like part of the method name. Uh, and, and then, and then here's the great thing. It re- so it returns zero if it can't find the method ID. But if you don't do anything else, it'll raise an exception in Java as soon as the C function returns. <laughs> so, it, Anyways, but it's it a little bit more involved. It doesn't sound like something you would typically do a lot of. Like, I, I mean, I've never written a C extension for Ruby either. But I feel like it's the kind of thing that you typically like. I want to go and I want to do. So, I want to do this work in C, and then uh, give me a result. Right, and then you use it. There's no, there's no calling back, or you should avoid calling back for these reasons. It sounds like, at least in the Java one, is the, is it as complicated in Ruby, or as ugly in Ruby? It's a, it, it's as ugly. It's slightly fewer lines of code in Ruby, like most things when comparing Ruby to Java. No, I mean, so I, I've, I've only got one, one place where I'm calling back into Java, and it's actually for good reason, because for an Android app, right? So if you if you package assets. They're not actually on the file system because they're inside of your APK, right? APK. Define APK for people. Android package K. It's okay. an app file. Okay. Uh, and, not, and it's not like OS ten where .app is actually just a folder. It is actually just a zip file, but like 
but it's, it doesn't li- you know your, your stuff doesn't live on the file system or at least you don't know where it is you certainly don't have like relative paths so yeah okay and android has uh interfaces that you can use to get files so what i'll do is i'll get the um path to this file anyway i have to load my binary file and it's just you can't just you know go f open on, on the file name you have to actually go through android to ask it hey where does this file live and so uh, then I read the binary file in C because, like, there, if there's one thing C is really good at, it's being able to say, take this set of bytes and treat it as a, an array of ints. Right. And then at the end of this, I'm going to have, uh, you know, this very large, complex data structure. And one of the things it's going to include are the materials. And the materials are going to reference the texture files. And the texture files are, A, not on the file path, and, B, are, are going to be, like, a PNG or a TGA. And I really don't want to just have to use libpng to, to, to decode it. So Android has a bitmap class that can do all of this for me. But I have already decoded the file in C, and Android does not have a native class to work with bitmaps. So I have to go back into Java then, grab the bitmap object. Oh. Sorry. There are native, that, that's why there are native functions to work with bitmaps, but you, do, you can't create them in C. You have to like, get a bitmap object from Java, and then you can call some C functions with that bitmap object. Okay. So that's why I'm having to call back. So you're going to write this entire app in C++, basically, and then write some stuff, some Chrome for it in Java, basically? Yeah, uh, that's... Or it, in it, Scala, or whatever the case may be? It's Java, because it's 100 lines, basically. It's like... It's a boot, it's a bootstrap for the C++ thing, basically. Yeah, it, it literally just calls the appropriate C method from the appropriate lifecycle methods. And then the iOS apps in Objective-C and, and the amount of iOS stuff looks basically exactly the same. Right. Um, it's yeah, so it's about a hundred lines to just wire it up to the actual OS. It's very small. I want to find I want to find something to write a C extension for. I've never had to do it. I want to find a unsolved problem somewhere that I can wrap a wrap an extension around. Three D rendering uh, that I can wrap my head around and can do on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find a C tool that's not yet exposed in Ruby and um, write an extension for it. Send me suggestions, people. I don't know. <laughs> anyway yeah i want to do that and then i want to do it in rust too like i, I read the um yehuda i think it was yehuda's or tom's article tom dale's article on writing i can't remember the title of it right now but basically writing c extensions in rust right isn't that what yeah. it was yeah yeah i mean if you tell rust that it, you want to have a couple of functions be externally visible to c then ultimately what you're going to get back on uh, at least for linux is you'll get back a .so file that's literally just a bunch of compiled machine code and then some function identifiers, so it doesn't matter what language it was written in, and you couldn't actually tell anymore what language it was written in. Okay. And then Interesting. it can also call C functions the same way. I live mostly in these interpreted languages now, so I never, like, I take advantage yeah. of all these things, but I never had to write anything. Any, I've never even, like, even in languages that had good interop, I don't ever remember, like, I wrote JRuby apps in environments where people wrote a lot of java and never even bothered interopping in that way um everything was just ruby all the way down until it was c (laughs) where i didn't care about it well there's not really a lot of necessarily times where most people ever would need anything else right unless you're unless you're augmenting reality then you know (laughs) but it's not even like for performance reasons it's just i'm doing stuff that actually sees really well meant for and then i'm interrupting heavily with a c and c library to the extent that it wouldn't make sense to write it in another language cool <laughs> what else i was gonna i was gonna go on a tangent about colleges and jobs 
But oh, I feel we can do that. For that. Unless we want to like edit this conversation back in at that point or something. Well, we might be able to. Let's just have this conversation. I like talking okay. about colleges and jobs. Well, so Turing, right? Mm-hmm. You graduate from Turing. How's Tess, how's Tess doing there, by the way? She's doing great. She's uh, definitely one of the top people in her class. How far along at this point now? She's more than halfway through. She's, cool. uh, she's halfway through module three. And so it's four modules, six weeks per module, and then a week break in between. And at the end of module three is when the job hunt starts because the idea is they're employable at the end of module three. And then module four is just like cherry on top. Okay. And so if you, gradu- if you complete the program and you graduate and you show that you are, in fact, looking for a job, and I think they have the qualifier of like you have to show it in three different regions um, so that way it's not contingent on the job market in a specific city. Mm-hmm. If you don't get a job with a minimum salary of $65,000 within three months of graduating, they refund your tuition. Okay, cool. Why don't colleges have this? <laughs> um, I think colleges would tell you because they're not in the business of making sure you get a job. Like they that, should be. That's not what they do. Should they? Like that makes them a vocational school. Like is that it, what, it, is that what depends, they are? It depends on the program, but for programs that the intention, like that you're going there because you are getting a degree so that you can get a job, like an MBA. Sure. Like that, that, that by definition is a degree that only exists so that you can run a business. Right. And when I went to UMass, I majored in computer science because I wanted to get a job as a computer programmer and it was interesting to me. And I thought that that was the way to do it. In hindsight, having a degree in computer science probably helped me none at all. I mean, it helped, I mean, it helped because I have a foundation in this stuff. But if I, I if I was truly interested in it, and I was, I would have found a way to do it anyway. Sure. Um, and plenty of people who work with me don't have computer science degrees or any degree at all, like yourself, correct? You don't have a degree, yeah. right? No, but I do think I have more of an in, uh, like I study computer science more and have more of an interest in it than a lot of people. Right. You probably you know way more about computer science than I do, even though I have a I, computer I, science I don't degree. know about that, but <laughs> I do specifically try and compensate for it because I like doing you know research to your point i think that that's what the university argument would be is that we're not a vocational school like we exist for general pursuit of knowledge and for they would never say this but basically the experience of going to college right right if that's the case when you get away from the field of programming we should probably stop having so basically every job out there require a four-year degree i think that that is um going to happen naturally College costs can't keep rising like they are and have all of these jobs require a four-year degree. It just doesn't make any sense because eventually somebody is going to see the market opportunity to be like, I could hire people without a degree, right? And this is going to start evening out. And that, I think, is partially what we're seeing in these like boot camp programs. Like They're expensive, but they're not college degree expensive, right? Well, And then if you don't get a job afterwards, they're free. Well, at least Turing is. At least Turing is. (laughs) I know know there's one or two others that are doing that as well. G-School in Denver is doing it as well. But it's just like it it keeps the program honest. If people are coming to your program to get a job, Mm -hmm. like, you know, of course, if they then start having to pay this guarantee a lot, they're going to go out of business. But they should because it means that they're no longer teaching uh, relevant or sufficient information. Right. But those, those are vocational schools, right? So I think that that's going to happen. I think we're going to have more vocational schools. We're going to have more apprenticeships and we're going to have more community colleges and things like that, filling the void of these schools that cost $40,000 a year that you know can't take everybody because nobody can afford that much money. Right. But even like community colleges, I think they should absolutely be able to have the same guarantee as well because a community college definitely is more of a two-year degree to be employed afterwards or employable. Yeah, I'd like to see it, but... 
I won't hold my breath. I think that changes exactly, particularly on like the university scale, right? That changes what those places view themselves as and what they, what I think most people get out of them. Like I am one of the few people I know from college that works in a field where I got my degree, right? So like my wife has a degree in English and she really liked her degree in English and liked that program, but she's not a writer or whatever you would do with a degree in English. <laughs> teach English which is what I always teased, teased her about in college but UMass owes her no money for that like she got what she wanted out of it the idea wasn't to be employable in and that's that fair but that's just not necessarily what the degree means in general I think to our society today yeah I mean I think that there people are applying what you get out of college to things where it probably doesn't necessarily make sense but maybe it's because they like the types of people that come out of college and not necessarily what they've learned in college sure but in I that case, then the, the university would have nothing to lose. <laughs> I, it's just I, you know, I, I grew up being being told like if I didn't if I didn't get a college degree, I would have basically no future and nobody would hire me. Right. And then nowadays you're hearing about kids, you know, basically hiding in the grad school program because they can't find jobs after college. Right. I graduated from UMass with no student loans, so that was fantastic. But I also graduated in a tough economic time. Like I graduated in the early 2000s. It was hard to find a job. I luckily did, but I didn't make much money. So luckily, you know, I had no, I was lucky enough to have good financial aid and get some support from my parents that like I didn't have these crushing student loans hanging over me for 10, 20 years. That's always good. Yeah. Anyway, that's Bike Shed's view on colleges. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, because I had a, uh, my, my parents thought I was going to go to like Harvard or something. So I had a decent sized college fund. Huh. And then I dropped out of college. <laughs> so I'm paying for tests to go to Turing with it. Yeah, so we have similar like college savings accounts for my kids and every time we're doing it I'm like, "Really? Are they going to like, you know, we have financial people telling us it's going to cost like 200 grand a year to go to college by the time that they're of age to go to college." Which is like that's just insane. I'm not going to save that much money for them. It's like, uh, they can go to UMass like and take out some student loans. They'll be fine. They'll be all right. <laughs> my plan is uh I'm going to make my kids take out student loans and then when they graduate, I'm going to pay it off in full, but I'm not going to tell them until they graduate. That's a thing I'm going to do. So that way they only go if they actually want to go and they're not going because of saddle pressures. They better not listen to this podcast. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's okay. Whatever devices they have will be incapable of playing whatever format audio that this is. So don't worry about it. I'm just imagining, though, because now that Tess is becoming a Rails developer, right? So our kids will now have enormous pressure to become Rails developers. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm really curious. Like 20 years from now, since we're both doing the same thing, what on earth are our kids going to think of us as Rails developers? Um, I don't think you'll be Rails developers in 20 years. Well, no, but we'll, uh, well, uh, 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 hopefully. <laughs> I could still be maintaining active record in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> you could make, you could, you could, Ben and I talked about this when we did the Upcase Ask Me Anything. It was like, at some point, Rails will transition into that thing that you do that like, oh, I got to go get the Rails guy. Uh, so I got to dig this guy up and he makes a ton of money because he's one of the few people left who know it will be cold fusion we'll at be some the, point. We'll be the COBOL programmers of the future. Right. <laughs> COBOL. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. 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 So we have, we have that to look forward to in our old age. Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 18. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback for this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shit, and we'll see you next time.